Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. We are here with another fantastic episode this week. I'm Kennedy Cooper. Leia Rose. I'm, I'm Brandon Buchanan. I know you guys hear me. Yeah, we, we can do. hear you. We do. Yeah. Beautiful. Perfect. <laughs> I was so upset about the possibility of not meeting Rebecca Parson and not talking to her. By the way, right? That would have been tragic. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Our guest this week, if you hadn't already figured it out from Brandon Spiller, <laughs> is Rebecca Parson. She is running for Washington's 6th Congressional District, and she is here with us. We are very excited to speak with her about a number of issues. Rebecca, thank you for coming to the show, and welcome. Hi, thank you so much, all of you, for having me. I have a feeling this is going to be an absolute pleasure. Our, our interview episodes are consistently good, and yeah, I think this is going to be great. I think it's because we let people talk. Which usually, if you do like an interview with like a newspaper or like a, a small television outlet, they don't because either they have like an ideological reason or they're just strapped for time. And it turns out that a lot of the people who want to be like leaders of our country in the future are just good at presenting ideas. It turns out. Yeah, like we have 60 plus minutes. We, we have however long we want to make these episodes. And, you know, these people are important. These people have important things to say. So, of course, we're going to let them talk. Also, we shut up, and our, our audience loves that. They're like, ah, oh, it's a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they tune in. They give us money on Patreon. I love the podcast, but I hate the people who talk on it. Yes. Anyways, anyways, Re Rebecca, <laughs> do you want to give sort of a, a quick introduction into yourself and your campaign? Sure, yeah. I'm running in Washington's 6th Congressional District. I'm a first-time candidate, and I'm a democratic socialist. I'm queer. I'm running on Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, a universal national rent control, affordable housing for everyone, and a foreign policy of peace and ending the endless foreign wars that we engage in as a country, and a lot of other progressive policies. My district is really interesting because we're in one of the most progressive states in the country. Uh, we have some progressive representation, like Pramila Jayapal, but my district, despite being working class, blue, very safe democratic district, is represented by the ninth most conservative Democrat in the House, who is chair of the New Democrats Coalition, which is the centrist, third-way conservative wing of the Democratic Party. And it's actually the mm -hmm. position that AOC's opponent, Joe Crowley, held a few years ago. So it's something that you get when you're trying to pad up your resume and make connections and eventually get into a leadership position in the House. Well, I think we're going to have a lot in common just based on what you said already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that going into this, but that is a fantastic list of issues to be concerned about. I kind of want to start somewhere a little different, though, which is something from your past. I was very interested to read that you were a human rights observer at a Zapatista village in Mexico. And I would love to hear about your experiences with that and how it shaped your views, perhaps, on things like grassroots activism or imperialism or subjects like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I first found out about the Zapatistas in college. I had friends who talked about them. And then I think I had one friend who went on kind of a study abroad in Mexico for, I think it was a summer, like a summer semester. And one place they went was the Zapatista community. He told me they had a language school there. And so when I was in college, actually, and we might talk about this later, but I took a class on genocide studies. And as part of that, I learned about the genocide in Guatemala during the civil war that they had. And 
for anybody listening who doesn't know, they had a 30-year-long civil war that was initiated when the U.S. helped topple their democratically elected leader. And a new leader came in, civil war ensued 30 years. As part of that, there was genocide committed against the Mayan population. And I wanted to find out more about it. Um, At the time, the investigators were going in and exhuming mass graves and identifying people and stuff like that. And I wanted to find out more about it. And also, Guatemala is a really good place to learn Spanish, which I wanted to do. So I went there. And um, while I was there, I learned a lot, um, learned Spanish. And Guatemala is right next to Southern Mexico. So then I went to Southern Mexico to the Zapatista language school for a week and then decided there was a local nonprofit there that would connect people who wanted to be human rights observers with villages that had requested it. And so I did that on two 10-day trips. And it was at a village in the jungle, isolated. It was being threatened by uh, paramilitary groups and these were funded by the Mexican government and right. they would be given names like local group for indigenous rights or something like that. But it would actually be threatening the Zapatista villages and not, you know. So they requested especially foreigners, especially white foreigners to be there and act as human rights observers so that if anything happened, we could document it. And also just because our presence meant that anything violent was much less likely to happen. So I did that right. and it was really interesting. And, you know, in Chiapas, uh, the population, the people there are Mayan as well. And so it was really interesting to see the contrast between the Mayan people in Guatemala and then in southern Mexico, where in the Zapatista communities, they had uh, self-determination. And then compared to the communities that I visited in Guatemala that had been crushed by civil war, genocide, continuing poverty, discrimination, didn't have very much self-determination. The people who committed the genocides, who uh, ordered it, who orchestrated it, went on to lead the country. So if you can imagine going through that and then having your country led by the people who did that to you and, and your family communities. Being in the Zapatista community, it was really inspiring to see how a community that is truly democratically run with direct democracy, where the people get a say in what happens, how much good can be done with that. They increase literacy rates. The status of women is much higher. Women's rights are much stronger. Infant mortality and uh, maternal mortality are down. And um, they control tons of land, uh, millions of dollars worth of industry and production crops, stuff like that. And just the amazing good they've been able to do, like they have clinics and ambulances and schools and like people's lives are materially better because they have this direct democracy. So it was really inspiring. That sounds really amazing. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. Just because they have different material conditions than, I mean, we have here. Is it just, is it a spiritual thing? Is it a material thing? That makes it work for them or what do you... Or what would... Not that we necessarily need to be exactly like them, but what do you think makes their communities function differently than ours? So it's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think that... That's the easiest way to put it. Be like, what can we learn from them? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think what they really have going is a strong sense of community where they have common bonds and they feel those common bonds. And then they have direct democracy where everybody has a say in what goes on. And I think that I'm not sure how to address the kind of common bond thing because, you know, it's it's interesting, like every so often studies will come out saying Denmark's the happiest country or they're so happy in Sweden and stuff like that. And <laughs> the truth is like, those are very small insular countries where it's kind of hard to be an outsider. Like I lived in Germany for a while because I'm half German and I would hear about expats who tried to move to Scandinavia and it's very difficult. It's uh, you have to learn the language. People aren't very forgiving if you don't or if you don't speak it well, like it's a little bit tribal. It's uh, extremely white. It's hard to enter as an outsider in those 
societies. So they have social democracy, um, they have strong social cohesion. They also have like very much that kind of identity. So what do you do in a like giant country like America where we have so many different identities, which is amazing. And I like, I like living somewhere like this. Like this is, you know, there's a reason I don't live in Europe, even mm -hmm. though I did for a little mm -hmm. while. I love living here, but it is like, you know, when we're not all from like one defined group, like we have to find something else. And a lot of people feel that in being American, you know, I do, but at the same time, things are really polarized. I'm not really sure how to address that. I don't think it's with the centrist cry for civility because that's just the unity and <laughs> civility, which is like, if you're oppressed <laughs> or a minority, just like, yeah. screw you, don't ever complain because that's not being, uni you know, hashtag unity or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's just BS. But I think one thing we can do is have more direct democracy and that would look different in our country than it does for the Zapatistas. But like one thing would be like, and they have in Seattle democracy vouchers where every, I think the amount in Seattle is $200 and anybody who's eligible to vote in Seattle, they get $200. You get a $200 and $50 vouchers each, I believe. You get five of them. Gotcha. Yeah. I think, um, is it you who lives in Seattle, Leah? Yeah, I do. Yeah, you probably know more about it than me, but like just because I live in Tacoma, but looking at it from the outside, I was like, that's just amazing. And I heard that um, the first election where they did that, their voter participation went way up. Is that right? I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, people just feel more involved, like when they actually get to donate money to candidates, they're more likely to vote, which makes sense. And then also, I think that Sean Scott, the Democratic Socialist running for city council there was among the highest or maybe the highest for um, democracy vouchers received. So yeah, Sean Scott is running in a in the Seattle City Council District 4, which is the university district and where I am. And yeah, he's a great candidate. We'd love to have him on sometime. But yeah, I do remember reading somewhere <laughs> He's received some of the most democracy vouchers to help fund his campaign. Yeah, definitely. And I think if we can do more things like that, where I would love to ban lobbyists, <laughs> to ban corporate donations to elections, to not have money be speech and corporations be people. And I think that any way we can find to adapt that where every member of our society, our country has a say in what happens. And uh, you don't have the situation where politicians are in office for decades, not representing the mm -hmm. people. I think that's something we could learn from the Zapatistas. Yeah. And it, it, it have to be, you know, a simultaneous movement from up and down, because if you just get rid of corporate money and lobbying, uh, you're not adequately having the people able to contribute to politics. And if you just do it the other way around with democracy vouchers, you're still having the influence of corporate money in politics. So really, you got to kind of attack it from both ends of taking down those at the top and bringing up those at the bottom in terms of political power to our ostensible democracy. Yeah, definitely. Very well said. I think the first time that I heard of you was someone on this show was like, yeah, you need to check out Rebecca Parsons. She's really rad. So I went to your Twitter feed. And the first thing that I read was um, when I considered running for Congress, I was told to be humble, start slowly and smart small. And people in my district have been hearing that message for a long time. I stopped your video because if you go there right now, I don't know what people will be doing months from now, but that's pinned to your profile. I said, whoever this person is, has got like an incredible copywriter. So <laughs> um, a few weeks later, after you are like lined up for the show, I was like, well, I should like you know, look into this person in more depth. You are that copywriter. <laughs> I, I was really totally That is also my background is in direct response copywriting. Oh, cool. Right. 
So my question, I guess, is does working in sales make you a better organizer in general? And what kind of lessons did you take from the copywriting world into the political world? Yeah, and I noticed that in the questions that y'all sent ahead of time. I was like, ooh, that's the first person who's asked me that. And it's interesting because there are a lot of parallels and a lot of ways that working in marketing and sales has helped me as a candidate. And I think one big one is emotional storytelling, where in you know the copy that works, uh, you know that I write for clients and write for my own business is uh, emotionally driven. And it's the same for political copy or speeches or tweets or anything where it needs to have some kind of emotional component. And I think the other interesting thing is like some people do kind of paint by numbers copywriting and some politicians do paint by numbers stump speeches where it's like, how many buzzwords can I throw in? And I'll just talk about bread and butter issues or I'll talk about strengthening the middle class and just throw this stuff in and people can kind of sense when it's not authentic. And that's something through studying copywriting, learning how to do it, I can see like the pieces people are trying to use where it doesn't quite work and then where it does and then apply that to politics. It's also helped with just being able to write, you know, like the script for my ad, which I wrote myself, being able to write my emails, stuff like that really it helps because uh, I don't take any corporate money, um, no PAC money. You know, I had a good first quarter for a grassroots candidate, but it's still, um, you know, have to really watch what I spend. And so it's, it's nice not having to pay somebody to do it. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. as well, like I do more um, like direct response copy. And for anybody who's not familiar with that, it's direct response is anything where you're looking for a particular result. The goal is for somebody to click on an ad or click on an email and then buy from the sales page as opposed to white papers or blogs or something where you just want mm-hmm. them to read it. There may not be like a specific action you want them to take. And so I focus on that more uh, specific action oriented type of copywriting. But I have also taken some online courses on sales for trying to get my own clients. And I've learned stuff there as well. Like, you know, in sales, they talk about objection handling. So, you know, when you're on a call with somebody and you say, here's my offer and um, here's how I can help your business with copywriting or whatever it may be, people will have like, well, I don't know, you know, I've worked with other marketers before and, you know, they ripped me off or they whatever. How do I know you're different? And that's very similar with voters. Like, well, how do I know you're not just another sleazy politician who's, why are you different? Why should I bother? Like, it's the same kind of thing. And so learning that in sales, I didn't want to say like sales is almost the wrong word. I don't really... uh, Mm. It's like if you know that you can help somebody and you have something that can help them and then they have like legitimate fears because they've been burned before, then how do you like listen to it and acknowledge and and talk through it with them? And it's the same thing with a voter. You're not trying to like strong arm them, but it's like, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. <laughs> like, um, you know, politicians do say those things or you're right to be skeptical, you know, and like really listen <sighs> definite parallels with sales so what's your feeling on marketing as an industry should we be like destroyed as a class yeah it's interesting because there's definitely there are a lot of unethical marketers out there you know maybe even the majority <laughs> especially in internet marketing but as itself as a tool i think it's agnostic you know it, it can be used for good it can be used for ill um it really depends on the intent of the person who's using it like with you know the emotional stuff i was talking about like fear is a very powerful emotional motivator um, in marketing and then you know in politics as we see with trump and it can be used for really evil 
multiple purposes. But there are other emotions like hope and uh, solidarity, things that are, you know, legitimate to be afraid of, you know, not fear mongering, like fear of the other, like Trump does, but, you know, legitimate fears. It can really be used for good or bad. I think like things like, you know, Facebook ads and how our data is collected and everything. I would love if that <laughs> Congress, it's just so funny watching the congressional hearings where the members of Congress obviously don't really even understand how Facebook works, much less Facebook ads. Or use a computer. <laughs> yeah, or how to use a computer. And it's like, so you put up the ad and then, you know, you'll show it to certain people. And it's like, yes, that's what targeting. How do you not know that? I don't, how are you in charge of questioning Facebook when you don't even understand <laughs> how it works? So I think that Facebook, you know, it's scary how much data they collect and it should be regulated a lot more. And I understand it from the inside out. So <laughs> in Congress, uh, if I were put on a committee where I had something to do with that, you know, at least I would understand it and be able to question in that way. Mm -hmm. You're already giving me confidence. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Like, gosh, I, I, I just want to say real quick that like when memes came out after that Facebook hearing thing, like I watched the actual hearing, no meme trying to make the questions look stupid were actually stupider than the questions asked. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing as well is like they don't. A lot of politicians, they didn't seem to understand the difference between like real hacking and then just like being smart on social media. Like the Russians did two different things. One was like trolls putting up memes and stirring up resentments. And even in some cases, getting people to show up to protests they had planned and like making the jump from online to the physical world. But that's different from hacking, like hacking the DNC servers. Like the trolls did not hack Facebook. They put up smart copy and memes that riled people up. Like that's not hacking Facebook. And so um, <laughs> it just bothers me when they don't get that. <laughs> Got to get the boomers out. Did I say something? Yeah. No, you've got, you've got a lot of boomer <laughs> oh. colleagues to look forward to working with, and you're going to have great relationships with all of them. You can't say that. We're not running for anything. You can say boomers out. Okay. Lay ass something. <laughs> I mean, I mean, lest we forget that the Trump administration put up Rudy Giuliani for cybersecurity, a man oh, who doesn't oh know how gosh. email works. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Incredible. Good stuff. Uh, but anyways, um, you, you've mentioned previously sort of um, in the sort of contemporary systems that we have today, there, there's a failure of oppressed people to be heard in a lot of different kind of situations and the kind of issues aren't being addressed properly. So and I know it's kind of a bit of a boilerplate question, but uh, how does your experience as a as a queer person uh, inspire you to overcome that politically and bring that voice to politics? Yeah, it definitely does. And it's kind of strange because, you know, I'm 34. So it feels like I'm not old enough to say like, wow, how the times have changed back when I was young or whatever. But it uh, really is that way for LGBTQ plus rights. I mean, I remember being in high school and totally in the closet and just like, reading these statistics, like 60 plus percent or almost 70 percent of the population, you know, doesn't believe in gay marriage, think that, you know, homosexuality is immoral, uh, you know, I grew up in a conservative family. And, you know, I just remember, at least for myself, I was like, I didn't really know that many gay people or who were out. So I didn't really, I was like, what is it even, what are gay people like? Like, what is it? If you're a lesbian or a queer person, like, does this mean you have to be this one way or this other way? Or 
you know, and I would see characters on TV and I was like, is that what it is? Or, you know, it's just like, I didn't really know. And so it was difficult. And I think also, you know, as you know, when I came out of the closet and I'm out of the closet now, of course, and yeah, it's definitely informed it, like just seeing the sea change because before, um, like when activists and lawyers and advocacy organizations started fighting for gay marriage, um, it seemed impossible. Like it just seemed like a gigantic thing to achieve. And now we have an very short time. And um, the public's opinion has changed so much. I mean, I think majorities support gay marriage now. Um, And just to see it happen so Mm -hmm. quickly is really inspiring because it shows like how quickly things can change and how much like individual people can do. Um, You know, Dan Savage, like love him or hate him, there are definitely reasons for both. But he talks about, he used to talk a lot about like one of the biggest things you could do as an individual is just be out because people are less likely to be homophobic if they know somebody who's out. Right. And it shows like how we do have power in our lives. And I think then like for myself, like when people meet me, most people assume I'm straight. Um, you know, even when I would be out with my ex-wife, they would think we were, rela- you know, blood relatives or something like they would just assume that I was straight. And so that's a different kind of thing where it's like, you know, I can never uh, fully understand what it's like to be from a different group, like to be trans or some other group like that. But I can try to apply my experiences. Like what would it be like to always be yeah. called one gender like the way that people always assume i'm straight and it's like people talk about coming out of the closet like i come out of the closet like every day you know all the time because because Mm -hmm. i just that's how i read and that's what people assume and so i can try to apply that to like other identities and how it might feel for those people yeah and let me tell you as a trans person it sucks uh, but anyways, um, I was really I, expecting that you'd have a more nuanced take on. <laughs> no, but it, it just sucks. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah, that that's it. You don't need. I don't need to say anything more. It just sucks, man. It fucking sucks. End of contrast. <laughs> no, it sucks. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I I just want to say like I'm 29 and and I don't think it's uh, crazy at all like talking about how much things have changed because I also uh, live through those changes and live through kind of uh, expressing um, things like bisexuality and pansexuality and being kind of mocked for it and stuff like that and now of course it's like nobody gives a crap and it's mm-hmm. so weird to, <laughs> yeah. to, to like feel like. Like, nobody cares about most of these things anymore, you know, like these issues of gender and sexuality uh, that I just, like, meet on the street. Yeah, it is weird. And, uh, yeah, so it, so it, it has changed a lot in a short time. And I think it is a, a powerful example of what is possible. So I can see how that could be very inspiring to a transformational campaign like yours. Yeah, it's, it's just been wild. I mean, I, I mean, what, what was the movie about... Uh, I can't remember the actress's name now, but she played a trans man. This was like 15 years ago. And then met a girl uh, like in the middle of the country. Are we talking about Boys Don't Cry? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what's her name? Million Dollar Baby. What's her face from that? Yeah. Is that the right one I'm thinking of? Yeah, it is. So that was in 99. So that was like... Yeah, uh, that was nice. uh, Hillary Swank. Yeah. Hillary Swank. Yeah. And I mean, that was like such a big deal when it came out. And I remember watching it and it was just wild. Like that was 20 years ago and, and things were so different then. Well, it just goes to show yeah. what might be possible. And yeah. on that subject of like what might be possible, uh, one of the things that we wanted to ask you about was your platform and what parts of it might have 
implications for improving life in your district specifically that we might not think of nationally? Yeah, that's a good question because like there are these policies like Medicare for All and the Green Deal housing policies that are national but affect different areas differently. And especially first thing that came to mind for me was the Green New Deal. So my district is Tacoma, which is south of Seattle, and then the entire Olympic Peninsula, which so if you just picture the northwesternmost tip of Washington state. And it's a lot of coastline. And there are several tribes that are on the coastline and they're being very severely impacted by rising sea levels. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's one tribe that has had to, uh, they're in the process of relocating their village, uh, one of their villages from where it is right by the shoreline, farther upland, and that is costing over a million dollars. You know, people have lived at this site in this village for since as long as they can remember. So it's a real loss that they have to move. And then the Macaw Nation, which is in the northwesternmost tip of my district, they've lived there for at least four and a half thousand years. Um, there's archaeological evidence going that far back. So really since time immemorial, as long as anybody can remember. I mean, it's just amazing to think about like before the Roman Empire, um, before the Old Testament, like it's just so far back. like ancient Greece, like they were living there. And their school is in a tsunami zone. So we have like a lot of uh, seismic activity here, tsunamis, a lot of the Oregon and Washington coast. And that school, the Macaw Nation School is in a tsunami zone. And currently their evacuation plan in the event of a tsunami is just to run uphill for a mile (laughs) and hope they can outrun the tsunami, which isn't a great plan. Obviously, yeah, especially with rising sea levels. So they need money in order to build a school somewhere else. Like ocean acidification is a big deal in my district as well. Um, We have the southern resident orca whales in the Puget Sound, and they are dying off, basically. I don't know if they're officially, I can't remember if they're officially designated endangered, but their population is decreasing. And one of the reasons is ocean acidification, because it affects the fatty tissue in their bodies. It makes them less able to, they're not able to recover as well. And then it also... There are other reasons as well, but that's a big one, ocean acidification. So with the Green New Deal, like it would have a big impact on addressing the ocean acidification, um, stopping it so that that would affect our wildlife. Then it would also, the Green New Deal would impact our tribes in the district so that they would get the relocation they need, but also halt the severe effects so it doesn't get even worse. In another part of my district in Aberdeen, every time I was out canvassing in uh, like a low income area and I was talking to a woman in an apartment complex and she said, every time uh, the river floods, it brings sewage up around the complex and there's sewage around where they're walking. So it's these real impacts, you know, it might affect different areas differently. Like if somebody here is listening uh, in California, then wildfires are going to be a bigger issue. But for us, those are some of the issues. And even where I live in Tacoma, we had one summer where wildfires in British Columbia and eastern Washington were sending ash up into the air that was then traveling over the Puget Sound. And so we had ashes falling from the sky. <laughs> and it was like an apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic movie. And it's like, this is climate change. And this is what, <laughs> you know, we need the Green New Deal to stop these, the most severe impacts from happening. One of the things that's really terrible is that like, Everybody around the country has their own individual climate change story about how the climate Mm -hmm. is changing, how things are getting worse for us on a day-to-day basis through the environment. But it takes like a collective action to do it. And it's hard to get people who live in Oklahoma, who've got their earthquakes, to care about what's going on over there with like the sanitation conditions, because I'm sure that was like just a total gross mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does it take to break that political logjam? 
because it feels just to me like we don't even have the, all the Democrats together behind taking the kind of drastic action that needs to be taken. So what what gets in the grease between I know you guys don't like that situation. I know people in Georgia don't like our situation with the climate. I know Kennedy's people don't. So what's the what's the log gap between all of these local areas that don't like their changes in weather and environment and nothing getting done on the national level? Yeah, I think it's really like the corporate Democrats, which is most of them, are just owned by their donors. You know, like my opponent, who is the incumbent Democrat, takes money from uh, oil and gas. And so when you take money from the people who are polluting our environment, you're not going to be predisposed to signing on to a big transformational visionary plan that's going to wean us off the nope. what's generating profit for your donors. <laughs> and it's a real problem. And uh, I think that the ways to, to break the logjam and to really get action done, one is like the youth movements like Greta Thunberg and the Sunrise Movement um, are doing a lot. I think using the inside-outside strategy, which is, I think, some Something that uh, now I forgot his name, but um, founder, one of the founders of uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, Michael Harrington, I think. I think he coined it. Maybe he got it from somebody else. But the idea is that when you're trying to get something done, you have people on the outside, the activists and organizers applying pressure, and you have the people on the inside who are getting it done with enacting it. Both sides are getting it done, but they're getting it done in different ways. The outside is applying the pressure, and the inside is uh, writing the laws or getting them passed. So there are different things that have happened through that. For example, the civil rights bills, that was an inside-outside strategy. And then what AOC did, like when there was the sit-in outside Nancy Pelosi's office by the Sunrise Movement, and she came and spoke to them and got them a lot of press and essentially did an impromptu press conference, that was like a miniature inside-outside strategy in action, like by somebody from the outside coming and speaking to people who were coming from the outside. And then that just generated a tremendous amount of press and attention in people talking about it. I think that's one real way we can get things done. And then also having candidates who actually come from their community. And if they don't follow through on their promises, their community can hold them accountable. You know, like one thing that organizations can do when they're endorsing, for example, say like, if, okay, if we're going to endorse you, do you commit to doing a quarterly call with us and our members? If you don't want endorsements to just be like a paper endorsement, you can slap it up on your site and that's it. Like if you're a movement organization, organizers, the tenants rights, whatever your issue is where you're really trying to make change in the community, it's like, okay, if we're going to endorse you, there needs to be some accountability. So are you going to meet with us? Are you going to keep hearing from us? And you better know that if you don't follow through, you'll be hearing from us and we will replace you. Like there needs to be that kind of accountability for change to happen. Right. So obviously, like a lot of people kind of criticize the position that you're in of primarying somebody who's sort of a quote unquote safe candidate or whatever. Do you think that primaries are bad for the Democratic Party or good for the Democratic Party? And furthermore, do you think that party unity is kind of a nebulous concept or is there like something important to it that should be maintained through all of this? And uh, just, just to kind of build on that and give sort of a context, we've talked a lot and talked to a lot of people on this podcast about the Democrats and the role of the Democrats in the general leftward movement. We've had on some Greens that want nothing to do with the Democrats and think that 
the Greens should be promoted as sort of the kind of party of the left to draw pressure on the Democrats to pull them leftward, or if they can't do it, then have the Green Party do it. At other times, it's been sort of a necessity to kind of use the Democrats. So regardless of which strategy you choose, there has to be an, an accepting that there is a conservative wing of the Democrats. And like you said, the person you're primarying is the seventh most conservative Democrat in the House. So how do we deal with that conservative wing and does it tie into party civility, as Kennedy said, or what are we looking at here, essentially? Yeah, well, I think, you know, and I have, you know, one of my close friends is somebody who doesn't believe in primarying Democrats. She thinks it's a waste of resources and that we should um, be flipping red seats blue instead. And, you know, we're we're very close friends and we just kind of don't talk about Bernie Sanders and we don't, talk, you know, we have other stuff that we share that makes us close yeah. friends and that's, you know, we respect each other. And so, um, you know, I have friends who believe that, you know, I disagree. I, I think that primaries are really important. Uh, otherwise, the party stagnates. And honestly, I think that a lot of these Democrats, especially in safe districts like mine in Washington state, like they're so coddled, they're just used to not being asked tough questions. So somebody just asks that, you know, they almost act offended or like, you know, we're threatening them if we just ask them like, hey, do you not supporting Medicare for all have something to do with all the money you take from big pharma? And it's like, oh, how dare you? And it's just, they're so coddled and primaries, I believe are necessary. Part of the thing is like, well, it's wasting resources. We should flip Republican seats, Democratic. One, I think that's coming from the concept of scarcity of resources, which is not valid. There's an abundance of resources, especially when there are candidates running that people actually believe in. You see that happening with Bernie Sanders, who raised the most money out of all of the candidates with small dollar donations, like meaning that, you know, when an establishment candidate, they're raising money from fundraisers and uh, PACs and stuff like that, and they're getting these $2,800 checks, that's the last time those people can donate. When you're getting stuff like myself, you know, people are donating $7, they're nowhere near the limit. And so when they can afford to, they can keep donating. So this idea of limited resources and scarcity, I think is a concept that's not applicable and isn't really helping us. And then I think as well, like, well, we see what good having these Democrats has done us, you know, they refuse to take action on climate change. I think that supporting policies that don't come anywhere close enough to what we need to actually address the climate crisis by 2030, and just saying, well, let's just do more carbon taxes, cap and trade, whatever, stuff like that, you know, is almost as bad as climate denialism, because um, it gets us to the same position where we could have civilization threatening level catastrophe if we don't take enough action. You know, I've actually canvassed as a volunteer on progressive campaigns and on centrist campaigns where I did not you know, I was not that enthusiastic about the candidates. I did it just to help flip the seat. And like, yeah, that's good. I'm glad that the Democrats, we have the majority in the House now. I was a very small part of that by volunteering on a centrist campaign. But that candidate, I'm not excited about her. She refuses to support Medicare for all. Like, AOC and the squad and the amount of attention they've drawn to like taxing the rich, uh, the Green New Deal, housing, like it's just done so much that I think primarying is absolutely necessary. And then aside from the things I've mentioned, like people just need these policies. My district is very working class. There are people literally dying, waiting in line for alcohol and addiction treatment because they can't get it. So when we have these centrists telling us, you know, we need an incrementalist approach, we need to be realistic. Well, I'm sorry, but people dying is morally unrealistic. It's a stain. It's a moral stain and we need to do something about it. And that's why I believe in primary. Very good answer. Yeah. Definitely. 
You mentioned one topic in there that I think uh, is a little less popular than some of these other ones. Like I think, you know, statistically, we've seen a lot of studies that Medicare for all is very popular right now. The Green New Deal is very popular and things like that. But housing and rent control and the issues revolving around that are a bit more controversial in the public sphere now. And it's one of those Mm -hmm. subjects where a lot of minds still kind of need to change potentially before we could see the kinds of things that like I would like to see, for instance, happen. So yeah, if we could hear from you about what you think about what it means to declare housing as a human right, and like what that looks like both in symbolic and practical terms, and why this is important. Yeah, definitely. I like there are housing policies that I'm really excited about. You know, from the beginning when I launched my campaign, I had national rent control as one of my policies because we really need it. I've been involved in the tenants' rights struggle here in Tacoma with a group called the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee. And we've gotten amazing wins for tenants in Tacoma. It all started when a apartment complex that was very low income, uh, the people living there were primarily on disability, in recovery from addiction, or they had felonies and they couldn't find anywhere else to rent because of housing discrimination. And this was for many of those people living there, their one stop between being in a home and not being in a home. And a developer bought the building, gave them all 14-day eviction notices. Some of them had been living there for years and years. So 14 days to get out of your home so that I can renovate and raise the rents. And that's how the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee started. And I wasn't involved at that early stage, but I saw the organizing happening and then I joined later. And we've gotten you know longer eviction periods in Tacoma and then also a fund. So if you're low income and evicted for certain reasons, you can get relocation assistance from the city. Mm. And so this is really important. Like it has an impact on people's lives. Like two people have died since being evicted from that apartment complex. And in a field in the city, just around the corner from my house, a Kenyan immigrant died in the snow alone. He just froze to death last winter when we had a lot of snow here. So that's something that the establishment doesn't like to, they like to just talk about, well, what's, you know, market-based solutions. Let's bring all stakeholders to the table. Let's form a commission to study the possibility of maybe doing something in 50 years. Well, sorry, but people are actually dying. And that's why I believe we need it. You know, I'm a renter myself. I don't think there are very few renters in Congress, few people who can really relate to having your rent, your rents rise. You know, I've had mine rise uh, 16% in the last three years, and that's actually not bad for Tacoma. It was recently declared by the newspaper, the quote unquote hottest housing market in Tacoma. I mean, it's just, it's hot for uh, people looking to make a profit, but for everybody else, it's pretty cold, especially when you're homeless on the street. And it's just like, you know, the whole housing market and the way it's structured is all for profit and for landlords and homeowners and not for the poor or the working class or renters or people who are essentially tenants of the bank because they're underwater due to predatory mortgages. And so I believe and what I'm fighting for is national rent control, which when I started looking into it before I was running, I discovered that we've had before. Uh, We had national rent control during World War II. And we also had it under President Nixon, who instituted it for a short period of time, made him popular and helped him get reelected. So it's constitutional. It's legal. We've had it before. 
And it's part of my housing package, which I also drew inspiration from the Homes Guarantee, which recently came out. Anybody listening to this, I recommend you look it up and Mm. um, download. They have about 10 page paper on their housing policy. And they advise Bernie Sanders on his housing policy that he recently came out with as well. So rent control is a huge one that really addresses like just making sure that rents can't be doubled, tripled because housing is really a matter of life or death. So that's kind of the top. But then from filling in like the supply and just the amount of housing available, um, it's estimated right now that we have, we're short 12 million units. And so I support building or rehabbing or, you know, purchasing private properties and making it into public housing. But essentially in the next 10 years, having 12 million new units of social housing and combining 12 million new affordable units with rent control. Those are the two biggest planks towards eliminating homelessness in our country. So when I talk about housing as a human right, that's really what I mean. Everybody's in a home and we have completely eliminated homelessness. I think that's a pretty amazing goal. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know it's going to be very difficult on a lot of levels, but I'm glad to hear somebody talk about it in both like the hopeful and practical terms that you're bringing to this conversation, because I think people need to realize what's really involved and what's really at stake. Yeah, definitely. And it has cascading benefits because when you are rehabbing or constructing that many new units of housing, that's a lot of new construction jobs that you're creating. The Green New Deal includes a federal jobs guarantee. And I'm going to fight for those being union living wage, you know, family wage union jobs. And so when you have all these new part of the Green New Deal federal jobs guarantee, uh, making sure that all this new social housing is carbon neutral because buildings are a big source of carbon emissions. So it really all starts to intersect. You know, we talk about reparations where we have uh, centuries of racist housing policy and reparations needs to be part of housing as well. So you start to pull together all these strands and like housing touches so much of it. I I wish when you said reparations, I had like a little button that set off like a like a excited like party alarm (laughs) kind of thing, because that's like that's like a a, a topic we really, really love to talk about on this podcast. Mm -hmm. We're we're kind of passionate about it. And so just the fact that you brought it up on your own is like, (laughs) (laughs) you do love to see it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but you talked about how kind of, yeah, homelessness is hard because there's a lack of empathy. And um, you, you've seen this recently with, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was a, a hearing about in New York City about a new homeless shelter. And some of the people there were just so incredibly vitriolic. There was one woman that said the shelter should be bombed and most of the crowd erupted in cheers. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. But another sort of policy issue where there's a lot of lack of empathy that could be moving towards actually treating the problem is addiction. And you specifically struggle with addiction being a sober alcoholic and you make treating addiction one of your policy planks that's on your website. So can you just kind of expand uh, for us a little bit here on how do we move towards treating addiction and what's the new way that we should be treating things from? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I've been sober for three years and it's part of my history. So I have it on my website because it's something I want. I don't want to be hidden from voters or, you know, for mm-hmm. the opposition to find it out and then kind of spring it on people and make it seem like I was hiding something or had this secret. You know, I just want people to know it's part of my past and part of who I am now. And I think it gives me a perspective on treating addiction that most politicians don't have. And honestly, a lot of it's just empty words from them, like wringing their hands about the opioid epidemic. Like, 
if you're so concerned about the opioid epidemic, why don't you stop taking money from the people who manufactured it? That would be a good start. And um, like in right. my district mm-hmm. in Clallam County, which is on the northwesternmost part of my district, a newspaper found that over a six-year period, there were prescribed 76 addictive prescription pills per person per year. And now that county has the highest opioid death rate in the state. And that is not a coincidence at all. And my opponent, Derek Kilmer, takes money from a big pharma pack. Uh, the members of that pack, the people who fund it, are the companies that are currently being sued and you know settling for millions of dollars for having manufactured this exact crisis. And so politicians talk about it, but they continue to take money from the people who created it. And I think as well, you know, addiction in alcoholism is addiction. Addiction is a disease, and I think it should be treated that way. And so you know, there's a lot of demonizing of alcoholics and addicts, kind of wringing hands and not really doing what's needed to address it. What's needed is, so I think as part of Medicare for All, detox, rehab, and treatment for anybody who wants it when they want it. Because I've mm-hmm. actually been with you know a friend of mine who was trying to get sober and called me. She was extremely intoxicated. I called the only detox facility in Tacoma that takes Medicaid and they were full. And they almost always are. People like in the community in Tacoma know that like, if you want to get in, you have to stay up until past midnight, call them at 1201 and get on the wait list for the following 24 hours. And even then you're probably not going to be able to get a bed. And so I called the hospital and was like, if I take her to the ER, will you detox her? Do you do detox? And they said, no. I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Nobody will take her. She needs to detox. And what people don't realize, many people don't know, is that alcoholics, if they have gotten to this degree of physical dependence, can die. If they try to just go cold turkey by themselves, they need to be medically detoxed. And so I called a friend of mine and was like, what am I supposed to do? Nobody will take her. And she said, well, just take her to the ER and then they'll have to take her. Like if you call them and ask ahead of time, they won't take her, but just go ahead and take her. So I did. And they kept her overnight. Detox is supposed to be three days. They kept her overnight and discharged her the next day. And then it took her like three or four weeks for a bed to open in rehab where I think she was spent like 30 or 60 days. So that kind of thing is just really inexcusable to me. Like it's not the best use of ER's resources. It wasn't enough. That's not what she really needed. And then she was lucky that we were able to do that at all because in other parts of my district, like in Grace Harbor County, where they have a serious addiction problem as well, addiction issue, like there's a priest there who ministers to, so the if anybody's heard of the Poor People's Campaign, which is co-led by Reverend William Barber, it's active in Washington state as well. And there's a church in Grace Harbor County that's led by a priest who ministers to people living in a homeless encampment there. And some people in that encampment are struggling with addiction. And she has tattooed on her arm the initials of people who have died waiting in line for treatment. And we need Medicare for all that includes detox, rehab, and treatment. So anybody who wants to get clean and sober can, and then they can stay clean and sober. And then something else that's not addressed is like, why do we have this rising addiction rate across the country? Part of it is the opioid epidemic, which was manufactured by the drug companies that created these drugs and then sent their drug reps out to doctors peddling them, completely underplaying how addictive they were, even though they knew how addictive they were. Part of it's our profit-driven medical system where that's incentive incentivized to prescribe these medications. Right. But then also it's like, I don't think addiction is talked about enough as a disease of despair, where why do so many people mm. in our society feel like they want to, like they want to check out, like life isn't worth living. And I would rather be high or drunk than 
in my life. And like in Great Harbor County and on the entire Olympic Peninsula, that used to be timber country. And after World War II, the Olympic Peninsula supplied most of the boards that built houses in the post-war construction boom all over the country. It's the timber capital of the world. And companies came in, they extracted the timber, they extracted the profit, they took the resources, those old growth trees that will never come back. And then they left and they just left a gaping hole behind them where jobs used to be and houses and families. And now it's just like addiction, despair, depression, suicide, joblessness, and just not feeling like you have a future. And that's part of it as well. Like, how do we build a society where people have a life to look forward to? And part of it is things like the Green New Deal and saying, when you graduate high school, you have a job waiting for you. It's going to be a union job where you can work 40 hours a week and support your family. You get vacation every year. You know, when you want health care, you get it. You're not going to be bankrupted. Um, you know, you can have kids when you want to. They talk about millennials not having enough kids. Well, we can't afford to. Right. And also like addiction is loneliness and the opposite of addiction is connection. How do we build a society where people are connected and they're not so isolated and feeling like it's me against the world. If I have a medical disaster, my life will be ruined. Nobody will help me. And it's up to me to dig myself out of this miserable hole. Like that's the way a lot of people feel right now. And that is isolation and loneliness, which is what addiction comes from. And we need to have the opposite. And that's one of the many things I admire about Marianne Williamson is that you know she talks about the emotional, social, psychological things going on behind the policies um, that are really important as well. Well, I don't think we could ask for better than a guest who talks about our favorite presidential candidate <laughs> unprovoked. <laughs> um, uh, that's Rebecca Farson, you've been an incredible guest. Please tell our lovely audience how they can get involved with your campaign, help you out and do something to support you because you obviously deserve it, in my opinion. Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, my website is Rebecca for WA.com, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-F-O-R-W-A.com. And there you can sign up to volunteer if you'd like. If you're in my district, of course, you can canvas. But if you're somewhere else in the country, you can text bank, phone bank. Um, you can help volunteer in other ways. There's lots of opportunities for remote volunteering. You'll also find a donate button on the site. If you can donate, I would really appreciate it. You know, I've had $1 donations. I have people who, you know, say, hey, I want to donate, but I have to wait till I I get my check on Friday, stuff like that, like whatever you can, it really helps. And I take every donation seriously. Like I'm reminded every time I go on Twitter and somebody sends a tweet like that, like, or, or DM or whatever, and like, I am tight right now, but I'll donate next month, that kind of thing. Like I really appreciate it. And that's like, I'm not getting money from corporate PACs, from billionaires, from lobbyists where it's like, yeah, sure. I'll write you a $2,800 check. It's no big deal. Like I know that my donations are coming from working class people. And so it really means a lot. My first quarter went well. And at this point, as of the time that we're recording, I'm really working on hiring more staff and building my ground game so we can knock as many doors as we need to win. Awesome. Well, we wish your campaign the best of luck. Absolutely. And uh, you can definitely expect some support from us. And I would say that probably our audience as well, audience, if you don't, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be coming to talk to some of you. Yeah, we're gonna be some sending some very mean messages to the astral plane. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, yeah, yeah, anyways. Thank you for having me on. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Guest. We hope to speak with you again sometime. And yeah. Same. Thank you. Uh we should also plug ourselves, you know, we have a Patreon. This oh, is why yes. nobody donates to our Patreon because half the time we forget <laughs> to mention it. 
We just there's no call to action. It's like <laughs> thanks for the free content, blah blah. <laughs> um, Patreon.com, not safe. And you support the show and you help us pay our bills and hopefully pay our editor and all these good things. That's right. All the good stuff. And we're on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. We're we're everywhere where podcasts are, but you can yeah. also rate us on Apple Podcasts and that does a lot yeah. for the show. This shit costs money to do, so please give us money so we can it keep doing it. costs us money to run the podcast. <laughs> it's not right at all. We gotta we gotta break even. So send us send Rebecca Parson your ten dollars. But if you have like two dollars left, I mean we'll take it. Yeah, donate to the podcast. Come on. Uh, thank I'll, you. I'll return the message. Like, if you guys don't give five dollars to the podcast, I'll be very disappointed, and I'll be paying. <laughs> no, just kidding. Oh, wow. oh god! Oh god! That's the best uh, cosign we've had in a long time. I love it. All right. With that, we have been not safe for wonks. I'm Kennedy right. Cooper. Brandon Buchanan. Leia Rose. And our guest once again was Rebecca Parson. Thank you. Brad. Bye bye.